This is a Dalarna University production. So I think it's time. I'm very pleased that you're all here and also welcome uh, those that are in uh, Borlänge to listen to uh, a very exciting talk from Veronica Boyks Mansilla, uh, who's here and is actually will discuss with us what uh, what are the future competences that we need in the global context and that is very very important for us when we are supposed to think about what kind of institution and what kind of educators will we be in the future or should we be in the future which is part of our um, we are in the process of thinking of our new vision here at mm -hmm. the university so this is hopefully something that will challenge our thinking a bit. And I'm very pleased that you are here and um, feel very warmly welcome. Yeah. And, and we are very interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very, very much. Mindy. And it's, it is really, can you hear me well? It sounds like, and I'm hoping that uh, our colleagues um, uh, elsewhere will be able to hear us uh, well as well. Um, it's, it's really an enormous pleasure to be here with you because I feel that the kinds of puzzles that we're trying to solve are very similar in a way. So learning from one another will be uh, of extreme uh, importance. Um, because we are a cozy group, I have the luxury of being able to uh, ask at least those of you who are here uh, present a little bit about uh, what area of work you, um, you're engaging in. You know, I imagine that many of you work with teacher education. So I'd love to very, very quickly hear a little bit from you, just name and the area that you focus on uh, so that we can introduce ourselves and have a sense of uh, our shared interest. And from then on, we'll move uh, really um, quite immediately into uh, what I'd like to share with you, and then we'll have some conversation after that. But could we go around and introduce ourselves? So I'm Veronica Boixmansi, and I work at Harvard University on two areas, interdisciplinary education and global education. Yeah. Excellent. So this is, this is quite fantastic because we have a diversity of perspectives on hopefully some, 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 common, uh, some common themes. And one of the things, I've studied interdisciplinarity for some time, and one of the things that I appreciate about conversations that bring these perspectives is really an understanding that it is not just our perspectives that we bring to the table when we enter these conversations. It's very much a whole biographies because the reasons in our lives for which we decided to go into nursing or into political science or into education. So it's really important, I think, in these conversations to keep in mind that there's so many values and so many perspectives and approaches and um, priorities that we bring and, uh, and how important it is for us to listen to one another so that we can learn from one another. So I'm hoping to share with you some of the work that we have been doing, uh, but then really sort of open things up for a good conversation so that we can sort of share concerns, questions, and, um, uh, and ideas. So let me um, bear with me as I learn to switch from one slide to, okay, there we go. All right, so uh, the title of my talk today is um, Educating for Global Competence and the Challenge of Preparing our Young People for uh, the World uh, of Today. Um, it's it's, it's uh, something that keeps me up at night, and I know that several, for several of you, this is something that uh, probably sort of intrigues you uh, enormously as well. I'd like for us to explore, explore 
three questions. One is, what is global competence? How can we define this capacity that we might call global competence and why is it so important for education today? Um, the second question is, what does this look like uh, in student work? You know, when, when is it that a piece of student work demonstrates global competence? How can we uh, look into that and assess uh, that? Um, and then, um, especially interesting for us as educators is identifying what are the challenges? What makes becoming more globally competent difficult, challenging? What do we know from studies in psychology um, about the learning demands and studies in anthropology about the learning demands of uh, becoming uh, more globally competent? This is especially important for those of you who view yourselves as preparing uh, teachers and I, or preparing educators, not educators simply within the formal educational systems, but also educators in the form of professionals, educators like nurses being educators about health, or like, um, uh, like um, new media um, uh, designers being educators about the role of new media uh, in contemporary society. So when I think about education, I'm thinking about education and educators writ large, uh, so to speak. So uh, this is the roadmap uh, for today. So I'll begin with a little story about how the work that we have done sort of has unfolded. And the reason for sharing the story is simply because I think that in the story you will capture some of the influences on the work that I will share uh, with you. And, and perhaps for some of you the stories might parallel some of your own pathways into this territory of uh, global uh, competence or global education or questions about global education. Then we'll talk a little bit about the significance, why this matters. We'll look into a framework for global competence that we have developed and is now uh, very much part of the, uh, the national, a new national initiative to internationalize uh, US students' minds, a very urgent necessity as you probably uh, gather. Um, I'd like to look together at an example of a student work. So we have some copies of this work um, and we'll be able to project it for those who are not here. Uh, and then discuss some of the learning demands uh, of this and sort of gather together some of the learning demands that we, uh, that we see. After that, we can look a little bit into current work and future work and uh, hopefully we'll learn, I'll, I'll get to learn uh, a little bit about how some of these ideas may uh, either open uh, new lines of work uh, for you or might resonate with lines of work that you're now uh, unfolding. So, uh, so that's the roadmap for what we will uh, do together. Um, so let me begin with the let me begin with the story and let me see if I can um, change this here. There we go. So for some time, my colleagues and I, I work at a research institution called Institute called Project Zero at the Graduate School of Education in Harvard. And uh, at Project Zero, we are very concerned or very interested in sort of how the mind uh, of uh, the human beings uh, operates, so to speak. Uh, but we view it in a very broad scope, you know, how human development takes place. And for many years, we've looked at higher end cognition to see, you know, how young people solve complex problems, what we have to say about how 
uh, we develop sort of disciplinary and interdisciplinary understandings. Um, and there's a variety, at any given time, there's a variety of research projects happening uh, within Project Zero that have to do with mind, more recently with the mind and society, um, and with learning uh, in particular. Um, so for several years, my colleagues, Howard Gardner, David Perkins, uh, Vito Perone, and several others, and myself, worked on uh, the question of what does it mean to teach for understanding? What does it mean, not for students to get to know information, but to really be able to use this information flexibly uh, to uh, interpret problems uh, around them, interpret, uh, apply concepts in more flexible ways. So for a long, long time, we dedicated a lot of effort in trying to design uh, frameworks that would uh, help teachers make decisions as to how to support deep understanding of concepts like you know, evolution, like, um, I don't know, um, gross national capital, um, or, uh, or, uh, or so. Um, within this work, uh, I paid particular attention to the understanding within disciplines. And the question here was, what does it mean to think like a historian? What does it look like when students think like biologists? What does it look like when they think like artists? And in that work, or what does it look like when they think like nurses or like political scientists? When within that work, um, there are a, there's the challenge of helping uh, teachers and young people understand what a discipline is and how disciplines are more complex than just a collection of facts. Uh, how disciplines are modes of thinking. They're, they embody content, they embody methods by which we discern what's trustworthy, what not. They embody purposes, the motivations for doing work in the discipline. They embody forms of communication, languages that are discipline specific. So for quite some time we spend uh, our efforts in trying to distill these qualities of mind and habits of mind that the disciplines bring to us and hope, hopefully sort of helping young people utilize these disciplinary modes of thinking to make sense of the world around them. But it was some time after that, so we published a couple of books on that. So it was some time after that that we were invited to consider the possibility of interdisciplinary work. And it was about, I would say, almost 10 years ago that we were invited to say something more or less legitimate about the nature of interdisciplinary work. So we scanned the literature and we saw that there was very little empirical work on interdisciplinary work. And I know that several of you are at least in interdisciplinary context as you collaborate with one another, whereas you talk with one another around a cup of coffee. So, so we tried to say, well, what does it look like when students do interdisciplinary work with quality? How do we assess? What are the criteria that we might bring to bear to assess interdisciplinary work? So we did a few expert studies looking at how experts do this so that we could learn from experts to see what the work might look like uh, among uh, the young. Um, and it was in the context of this, um, of this work that we began to develop a pedagogical framework uh, of interdis for interdisciplinary teaching uh, and learning. And let me see if I can connect this. So what you see in front of you is sort of a team of teachers with whom we met for about, this is an action research project, it's a team of teachers with whom we met for about two years every other week with the idea that we would study a problem together, try to understand this problem in depth, and try to design model exemplary, we hoped, exemplary units 
uh, that would uh, invite interdisciplinary understanding, deep interdisciplinary understanding among high school students. And um, the range of grades were between sixth grade and twelfth grade in the mostly public school teachers. Uh, these teachers represent various different disciplines. And here's what happened that was really interesting and took us in a direction that we were not expecting. Our grant was supposed to be designed to develop a framework for interdisciplinary teaching. And that we did. But in the process of doing that, we opted for studying the problem of globalization. We asked ourselves, if we pick this topic of globalization and we try to understand this topic together, bringing out various perspectives, studying it together, can we design units that teach globalization, teach kids about globalization in really powerful ways? Now, mind you, this process was taking place at the very, very moment in which globalization became enormously visible as a phenomenon in societies around the world. So it turns out that what we were studying in this group, which you know you'll find it interesting because we had agreed with uh, we had agreed with our um, with our uh, teachers that they would come for an hour and a half every two weeks. We have like an understanding, a memo of understanding of what our agreement would be. It turns out that these meetings went for four hours over dinner forever. Why? Because what was happening around us, what was on the cover of Time magazine, sort of a very American, what was on the TV, what was uh, on the newspapers, and so forth, was all about globalization. And all of a sudden, it's... Um, it was an awareness about globalization being everywhere, which became our mantra. It's everywhere. It's everywhere, we kept saying. Uh, it was an awareness, an increased awareness on how global our lives were and how interactive they were and how much it mattered that all of a sudden the economies were so intertwined and how much it mattered that we had these migratory patterns. And yes, I see migrants in my community, but now the teachers said I can locate these migrants' experiences in a much much broader context, which is migrants moving around the world all over the place. So for many of these teachers and for us as researchers, there was a, some form of awakening, if you wish, um, that is the type of awakening that happens when the problems of society that are very pressing and very visible become the content of the curriculum. So rather than looking at globalization as the context in which we were teaching science and history and so forth, globalization became the content of what we studied. It's very much like when you take sustainable development as the content of what is studied, or when you take global health as the content of what it's studied. The content is relevant in contemporary terms, and that was, was an important insight uh, for us. Why that? It's because we began to play with the idea of global consciousness as something that was emerging for us in our group. Global consciousness in our minds was more than knowing about the world. It was having a sensitivity, sort of seeing the world in our everyday life in a way that we were not aware of before. And not only that, but also beginning to define ourselves as individuals in our identity, as individuals who belonged to this world that was not just local but had many influences from, uh, from outside. So what kinds of units did our teachers develop? Well, one, one teacher looked at 
how uh, products like the cell phones, the iPhones, and the, uh, the, the sneakers and so forth that the kids were wearing were produced in the context of production in China and India and Mexico. Very similar, Maria, to the project that you're, that you're, that you're leading on, 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 on energy. Right? Um, so uh, we looked at, some students looked at how hip hop that is apparently sort of a common youth culture element actually is interpreted very differently in Japan, in the United States, and in Brazil. In Japan, hip hop enters the country through the upper middle classes as a statement of individuality, whereas in Brazil you see images of hip hop with um, with the cross behind it, which is really a challenging combination of ideas if you're used to hip-hop in the United States, where there's nothing religious about hip-hop in the United States. So it's liberation theology that is, entered, that is allowing young people in the slums or in the favelas to pick up hip-hop as a form of cultural but with a very strong religious content uh, in it as well. So we became interested in seeing how things like McDonald's or hip-hop were interpreted very differently in different places and how they were adopted in very, very different ways. We became very interested in comparing cases, comparing the impact of climate change on the coast of Boston with the impact of climate change on the coasts elsewhere. So um, it was this uh, sort of this... Um, awakening, as I said, in our group of this alertness to the global influences on our everyday life that became a very empowering uh, experience for us as educators as well as for the children of the students with whom we worked. Why that? You would see for the first time a student who was normally considerably not engaged running into class with the cover of Time magazine about the rise of China or another one saying I had to fight with my father for this, um, for this newspaper article because the newspaper so that I could bring it to school because it's about what we're studying. So all of a sudden the students were beginning to see what they were studying outside of school and that turned out to be an incredibly powerful experience for them. All of a sudden they demonstrated, they actually they stated that um, they found a place at the dinner table as one as one, as one of the students said, you know, all of a sudden they would say things at the dinner table that called adults' attention and would be, um, would invite engagement in sort of the real conversations that societies uh, are having, you know, here uh, and now. So in that sense it was, it felt to us like a very powerful venue to continue to study and to try to understand how these young people's minds were being sort of opened, as well as ours, because we were experiencing the same, uh, the same phenomenon, um, if you wish. So um, you have uh, here my uh, beloved team of teachers with whom we uh, experience this uh, together. And um, a lot of this work has been um, framed for the... Uh, oops. A lot of this work has been framed for the International Baccalaureate. So uh, how many of you are sort of familiar with the International Baccalaureate program? Yeah, okay. So that's a, that's a very international sort of uh, originally based in Geneva uh, type of curriculum that is taught all around the world. So a lot of these ideas are at this point within, uh, within uh, that, uh, that community, uh, uh, if you wish. So... 
Globalization and global consciousness are interesting ideas, but when you work with policymakers, global consciousness, and when we work with American policymakers, North American policymakers, the concept of consciousness flies out the window the moment you bring it up. Essentially, because it has all of this baggage of, you know, uh, you know, who knows? You know, you, you 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 get the picture of you know the associations that come with consciousness. You can't measure it. It has to do with issues of social justice. It has to do with all sorts of movements and so forth. So essentially, um, we reframed this some of these ideas, and we worked with a collection of uh, curriculum developers uh, across the country. Um, to uh, to develop a framework that would teach that would help us articulate what kinds of skills or competencies uh, matter if we're going to prepare young people for uh, uh, for the world uh, of today, and I'll um, I'll share with you in a minute uh, this framework that we developed. Um, the question becomes why 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 bother with global competence? We're kind of okay where we are when. You know, why, why should we care, right? Um, and it's interesting. There are many reasons, there are many ways to frame the why should we care. So if, um, in the global risks uh, landscape from coming out of Davos uh, every year, there's some, some, sense, of, uh, some sense of the, the pressing issues, at least that the Davos community, a very particular community, views as, uh, as, as, as pressing, pressing issues for, you know, for our... Uh, for our societies today, you know, from uh, severe income disparity being at the top of the collection of problems of, uh, um, to things like rising greenhouse gas emissions or, or water supply crises, and these, types of, these types of sort of um, alerts, if you wish, in terms of uh, risks moving forward. And when we look um, at these problems, we can group them a little bit around sort of some, some interesting areas, particularly interesting for us sort of in education. So on the one hand, we have the issue of economic interdependence, and we have um, the work of uh, economists uh, in education uh, suggesting that we are right now experiencing a new distribution of labor, sort of all of the work that is very routine is being co-opted, so to speak, by computers or can be delegated to computers or it can be outsourced to uh, societies and groups within societies that have uh, less um, of uh, and sort of a higher levels of, 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 of education. So we see that the jobs uh, that have to do with higher order thinking, with expertise, with complex collaborations seem to be more valuable. And here we have a distribution of labor that is new. Uh, and it's uh, and is uh, is is global, uh, so to speak. So access to um, these more, if you wish, sort of higher uh, higher in demand uh, types of uh, uh, work uh, is important. Now, that's the argument that economists made. I would like to add to that uh, to that argument that regardless of whether your job will be that of a university faculty or your job will be that of a teacher or a plumber or um, a nurse, that understanding the context in which this job happens is extremely important. I think it's very, very important today to place our professions in the broader landscape of what's happening in the world, to provide the plumber, the teacher, the nurse with ways to think through the decisions that they make uh, in ways that are informed. 
So every job has consequences. We all have make consequences happen, so to speak, whether for the environment, for the societies, for health, global health, local health. So allowing us a broader framework to interpret the consequences of the daily jobs that we have is what this, uh, this invitation uh, is. Another area of debate is the whole question of uh, immigration. Um, so we have you know, more than 120-something sort of million um, migrants you know, living uh, around uh, the world. And, and that again sort of invites us to, as we walk down the street, we see new colors, new faces, new attires, new styles, new languages. And we're confronted with that in our everyday lives, whether you live in Buenos Aires, in Asuncion, Paraguay, or in Stockholm, uh, Sweden. Migratory patterns are not just so south-north, they're regional, they're local, they're countryside to city. Uh, so we are all experiencing either the either whether we are in the reception end of migration or whether we're in the sending end of migration, we're all affected. Families are affected, communities are affected. So the question here too becomes what kind of mind do we need to prepare so that young people can live in a world that is of increasing diversity and increasing complexity? So the elements of perhaps you know empathy, perhaps understanding cultural perspectives, and the several sort of qualities of mind. Um, that seem to be uh, essential. And here too, the challenge becomes uh, one of ensuring that our democracies are real democracies as we enter in dialogue with people who are uh, different. And there are other sort of demands as well. We are very well aware of the ecological sort of impact of globalization or the ecological sort of um, outfall of our increased uh, production and the need for sustainable development. We're all aware of the digital technologies and how they frame our world uh, today, they frame the world of our, of our young uh, uh, people. Um, and, uh, and understanding any of these phenomena requires, or solving some of these challenges, requires, number one, that we collaborate across countries. Number two, that we think from multiple perspectives, disciplinary perspectives, local perspectives, and so forth. So there's complexity in, um, in, this, in this world. Now, somebody would say, wait a minute, Veronica, isn't this a gloomy picture of the world? Isn't this like a horrifying picture of the world? Isn't this like, come on, only risks? Well, I would say that we can reframe these risks as opportunities, as the type of thing that our students will need to work on in their generation. It's the path forward. And I think that we need to, while we might frame the challenges as opportunities, we necessarily must frame our students as capable, as capable of embarking in the solutions of some of these, uh, some of these uh, issues. So then what is global competence? Let me see, before, before I do this, if we were to say right now, sort of from our own sort of perspectives, what global, how you would define global competence, what would we say? What are the words that come to mind when we think about global competence? You would think about, you think about somebody who uh, you consider global competent, globally competent, or uh, some qualities of mind that you think are particularly important. What? Let's see. Let's let's just get it. Yeah. Understanding different cultures, uh -huh, essential for global competence. Uh -huh, what else do we need? Yeah. Empathy, uh -huh, really having 
Exactly. Uh-huh. Sort of having the sense, this at least this attempt to feel, you know, what the other person is doing. Communication skills, yes. We're crossing boundaries of language, of class, of race, of you know, all sorts of uh huh. Anything else that comes to mind? Yeah. Open mindedness. Uh huh. Yeah. Being able to suspend disbelief, suspend judgment, so to speak. And uh huh. One more? Yeah. Understanding our resources. You know, what do we have available you know, to, to address? Some of these, some of these big, big issues. I'm sure that you have other sort of ideas, and let me just uh, briefly frame for you how we have uh, come to think about these, the global competence framework, simply because it echoes uh, so much of what we have just said. We said, well, global competence is a capacity and disposition to understand and act on issues of global significance. It is the capacity and disposition to understand and act on issues of global significance. And let me stop right there for one second. So when we think about understanding, again, it's not this idea that global competence is about knowing all of the capitals and the locations of countries and continents, or all of the histories of the world. It's more about understanding how certain historical patterns may, uh, may explain contemporary phenomena. It's about understanding how uh, particular cultural traditions may be informing governmental decisions. It's understanding how particular environments may be um, more or less resource uh, rich. It's understanding flexibly um, issues about the world. We also say it's the disposition to understand. So, and when we think about disposition, again, we're thinking about not just understanding, but also sort of an inclination to thinking in global terms. Is that sensitivity? We're very good, or we have become very good in education. When we are good at what we do, we've become very, very good at getting kids to, or young people, to understand certain topics. What we have not managed to do is to instill in their minds the idea that when they're outside of the schooling systems and when they're outside of the testing situations, that content is relevant. We're finding a very, very barrier of transfer uh, in what's learned in school to what's learned and used outside of school. So dispositions are the concept that we use to describe three things that you'll find resonate with what I said a little bit earlier. One is the sensitivity to opportunities to use the concepts that we have learned about, the capacity to use these concepts, and then the inclination to using them sort of all the time. So if my students understand something about inequality, for example, they would not only be able to define inequality, apply concepts of inequality to a variety of cases that I give them in, the, in my class, but they would also be able to catch elements of inequality in the neighborhoods where they live. They might be able to interpret a newspaper article that they read outside of my prompting with sort of a framework on inequality uh, and so forth. So, and they would begin to view themselves as somebody who thinks about inequality on a regular basis. So that's the aspiration. And it's really sort of a big, uh, a big challenge, uh, if you wish, to move from understanding to disposition. And then the other thing that sort of proved a little bit sort of uh, subversive, if you wish, within the educational system in the US is this notion of action. It's not just about understanding and having a disposition to understand, but also to act, to participate, to actually do something about it. Um, again, we had, you know, 
pushback from, wait a minute, how do you assess action? We can't put action on the test. You know, how do you do what's, what's it? Let's define this outside of the test situation. Let's aspire for a kind of human being that we're really hoping we'll be able to nurture. And then we'll figure out what we do with the test. So let's, let's leave the test for, for, for a later conversation. And that's how we, sort of, we managed to, to move some of this framework forward. Now, we unpacked this framework and we said, well, there are sort of a few key qualities to, uh, to this. Um, one is that, um, that our students need to understand uh, the world through disciplinary and interdisciplinary lenses. So you can't be, we can't be global comp globally competent if we really don't have any grounding or knowledge of the world. I mean, we're subjects to propaganda, to populist, you know, to all sorts of uh, problems, health issues, if we are not understanding sort of a little bit more deeply um, phenomena that we, that we study. And then there are sort of four capacities that we have associated with global competence. One is the capacity for students to investigate the world. Not to know it already, but the capacity to learn about it, to figure things out, the capacity to ask a powerful question, the capacity to think about what counts as a significant question. Today in the internet, there's access to all sorts of information. What comes as a significant information? What comes as a significant question? What's important to study vis-a-vis -vis the world uh, of today? The capacity to uh, read sources that are beyond the local sources. Really read outside of our local language, outside of our local communities, outside of our local um, uh, production. Number two. The capacity to recognize perspectives, Many, very much as you were saying, you know, understanding culture, understanding religion, understanding that somebody else may have a different frame of mind, and understanding, believe it or not, that we have a frame of mind as well, that we have a, that's very difficult for students to understand. You know, they, they seem to attribute culture to somebody that's different from us. You know, that's a very typical misconception. I heard students say, well, you know, the kids in Uganda, they were, they're very cultured. I said, cultured? What do you mean by cultured? You know, they have a culture. <laughs> What do you mean they have a culture? Is it, we don't have a culture. No, no, no. We're like, no, we're, we're Americans. They have a culture. You know, so I'm thinking, oh my God, so much work to do. <laughs> exactly. So, so in a way, that's a host of, there are a collection of misconceptions that kids bring to this conversation that once we open up the conversation without judging them, simply sort of eliciting them so that we know what we're working with. We know the belief systems that we're working with and so that we know what it is that we need to be changing and transforming. So having a sense of one's own culture, having a sense of how do we present our culture? How do we share our culture? It's not just about learning from other people. It's also sharing our culture, you know, putting our cultures in dialogue so that we can influence one another or you know, find better solutions. And on the spirit of sharing our cultures, so there's also this, this piece that you brought up about communicating and how do we communicate across difference. And the difference may be of language. So we think that you know, globally competent young people need, and again, I think that this is especially pressing for us in the United States, uh, need to learn other languages. We're really not good at doing this. We need to, we're putting an enormous effort in trying to, to move this forward. Um, but it's not just that. It's, it's, it's also sort of understanding uh, how to interpret language. And for many of you are sort of linguists or in second language uh, teaching. I think that there's a very interesting development there too. Uh, from thinking about language as you know vocabulary and grammar and sort of the syntax, if you wish, and semantics of, of of language, to looking at 
language as in sociolinguistic terms, if you wish. Sort of, what do I do when I use one register or another register to explain a particular concept? You know, what is the difference between saying, oh, I thought this is super cool, versus I think this is particularly interesting because, you know, those are very two very different accounts of the same impetus, and they present me as a thinker in different ways. They present my relationship with what I'm talking about in different ways. They allow me to belong to different linguistic communities. And it's really not the case, I think, that uh, that there's only one version of the language. And this is, I think, the nice contribution of social, social linguistics, is that when we invite our children who uh, speak in Spanglish, you know, the Latino population in the US, we can teach them how to speak academic English, you know, in the context of schooling. But let's not ask them to speak that language in the barrios, because that would be a complete failure of communication. I mean, speaking academic language in the barrios generates a lack of communication and a distancing that is not that is not what we want. So in a globally competent environment or a globally competent world or, or, or disposition, kids are able to translate the versions of their own language in different discursive communities in adaptive ways and intelligent ways. So we can see how even within one language, there's an enormous uh, invitation to think about language and context, to think about language with the purpose of communicating. So I certainly could not be too academic in the barrios because it wouldn't work. And I could not be too Latino, sort of, uh, uh, how would I say, sort of Spanglish speaking in my paper for school because it also would not work. So learning these about these language cultures, so to speak, is, uh, is, is important. And finally, taking action. And here, I think that here we have a lot of work to do in education and, and probably elsewhere as well. Um, to a great degree, there's a variety of fabulous invitations on the part of, um, of very good schools who say, let's do a fundraiser, let's make a bike sale, let's do so that we can help sort of run uh, a, an institution that takes care of orphan children in Uganda, for example. So there's a beautiful invitation to participate on the part of schools and children. They engage an enormous amount. Now, the invitation for us to think further is to say, do, the, do these kids really understand the context in which they're helping? Do they really understand this? Or is it is it the case that thinking about these poor orphan children in Uganda completes a stereotype that I have about these poor orphan children in Uganda that I'm going to be helping so much, you know, this is, you know, the, the, the kid's voice. You know. uh, can, we, can we invite kids to rethink that stereotype and, uh, and understand the resourcefulness of the orphan child in Uganda and the resilience and the power as well as the complexities and difficulties of his or her life. So in action, and particularly in social action, there's again an enormous amount of interesting work to do uh, with, um, with kids. So um, how about I uh, stop right there to invite us, let me see, because I keep forgetting to put this in here. Um, to invite us to take a look at um, look at an example, would you like to see an example of a student work? All right. So um, yeah, I think that that's what. So I have copies of the example, and you can maybe we can distribute them. And do what you mind picking 
And uh, what I will do is I will project the example on uh, the screen Oops. So, that, um, so that folks can see what it is that we're talking about. So we'll take a look at this example together, and then after that, we're going to sort of uh, uh, wrap a little bit of this. The, the example will invite us to, uh, to converse, or to, uh, or to, have, to have a conversation. Before you read the example, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on it. Oops, let me just skip. I'm going to skip a few, um, a few of these, because I will use them if we need to, if we need to, um, to have more examples. Here we go. Oh, no, yeah, that's it. All right. So this example is a high school student. Brian is a high school student. He uh, studies at um, a public school in the United States um, where the teacher is teaching about uh, genocides in the modern sort of era. Um, she, this is a year-long class. It's about, um, and, it, uh, and it invites kids to explore these ideas. You know, why do basic human rights and essential notions of justice seem so obvious and yet so elusive? What are our basic human rights? How are they guaranteed? How have they been violated in this nation as well as in other parts of the world? What is our role as individual citizens of a nation and the world? And how have individuals sought to secure and guarantee human rights in places around the world? So this is a, essentially is a history class, but with an enormous human rights sort of uh, uh, lens um, uh, through it. The students spend a considerable amount of time looking at the Holocaust as a particular case of mass uh, violation of human rights, you know, a particular case of genocide. And throughout there, and they study other cases, you know, Rwanda, the dictatorships in Latin America. And throughout this process, the students are invited to pick one case and study it in some depth. After writing a paper, there's a historical paper about the case, they're invited then to uh, create a memorial, um, combining elements of the arts into their understanding of the case. And the memorial uh, is meant to really capture something essential about the case, essential about this period in history. So if it is about Rwanda, then the students are pushed to say, what was unique about the genocide in Rwanda? Perhaps the compression of time. So that's a metaphor that kids work with. Um, if they're thinking about Latin America, what was unique about Latin America? Well, it was like the state you know, presence, you know, in this, this is the, the, the organization of the state around some of this. So students are invited to pick what really, really is unique and powerful about and, and drastic about these particular cases and, um, and, uh, and then create a memorial that, a uh, maquette for a memorial that, um, that might capture some of that. So what you see in front of you is Brian's nuclear bomb memorial. He chose the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, as the case, as his, his case, um, and I'd like you to take a look at the image and just very briefly share what you see, what you notice in that image. Shadows. Uh huh. What else calls our attention? Empty space, uh -huh. there's like no life in that place. Right? 
Uh -huh. So what you see is the maquette. In the background, there are other maquettes, so you don't need to worry about those. And in front of the maquette is, the, is Brian's write-up, a sort of artist statement, so to speak. Anything else that calls your attention? Yeah, yeah, that's sort of a maquette in the background here. Yeah, thank you for that. That's another, because the kids are exhibiting several maquettes in, in the classroom. Yeah, mm -hmm, I see that. The bars on the windows, uh huh. Yeah. Anything else that calls that? The sky, the sky? There's some darkness around it, uh huh, yeah. It works on that picture. Great. Let me then sort of, let's, let us take a look at what Brian has to say about his image, um, his maquette. One of the things that's interesting about this is that uh, Judy, the teacher, was really not particularly keen on the technique of the maquette. As you can see, there's like scotch tape that you can see, you know, it's really not particularly beautiful in the technical sense. But what she was looking for was something that would be powerful in the conceptual sense. So let's take a look at what Brian has to say about um, about his memorial. And one of the things that I think we're going to try to do is, as we read, let's take note of where we see Brian being globally competent. Like all of us, Brian is at some points, so some accomplishments that he has, and some further points for development. So let's sort of see if global competence is about those things that we mentioned, investigating the world, taking perspective, communicating with nuance across differences, and taking action. Where is evidence of that in Brian's thinking? So let's, um, I'll read it aloud if, um, if that works for us, and then um, we can um, deliberate a little bit about what we see in Brian's work. Yeah, shall we do that? So the memorial I have proposed is a series of silhouettes painted on walls and streets of Hiroshima and Nagasaki to commemorate the victims of the nuclear bombings in these cities that the United States conducted at the end of World War II. A mirroring set of silhouettes would be painted in Washington, D.C., in the United States, near the political and military centers of command where the bombings were directed. These silhouettes, in all locations would be painting, painted in the locations and orientations where actual shadows would have been cast by victims as the bombs went off. In regards to Washington DC, the shadows would be positioned as if the light from a nuclear explosion had traveled all the way around the world. Each silhouette would be accompanied by a small plaque listing name or names of real life victims who might have cast a shadow just like the painted silhouettes. It would be impossible to determine the exact locations and positions of real victims when the bombs went off, but they could be approximated and real names matched with corresponding body types and genders. A central information kiosk with a map, further names, and basic information about the bombings in many languages would exist nearby any grouping of silhouettes. The intended audience of this memorial is twofold. In one regard, it is a monument to the lives of victims, and it's targeted at descendants and survivors of the blast to recognize the potential that was lost and the emotional gap that people have to live with. In other regard, the target is government leaders and policymakers, both of the past and the present. The past leaders would be haunted by the ghosts of the innocent civilians who died at their discretion and present leaders would feel the pressure of lives lost in the past 
weigh upon the decisions they might take in the present. This memorial does not take a side and say whether the bombings were a good or a bad decision, a horrible mistake or a difficult step that had to be taken. Instead, it recognizes the huge loss of life that resulted and stands as a reminder that victims are functioning members of society, not just numbers. This exhibit is intended to be similar to one in Berlin, in which signposts describing Nazi laws persecuting Jews sprinkled through a neighborhood. The silhouettes would not directly intrude upon people's lives, cause inconvenience, or attract large numbers of tourists. However, they would stand as a constant reminder of the empty hold in our society by the use of nuclear weaponry, and the impact that military decisions made from across the globe can have on real human lives. The purpose is to investigate the memorial, is to integrate the memorial into people's lives and to make the remembrance of victims an everyday part of life as opposed to a once-in-a-while optional visit to a remote or isolated monument. It's a neat piece, isn't it? I, 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 I like it very much personally because I think it has depth to, to what he thinks. Can we just spend one minute sharing sort of noticing what it is that calls our attention in terms of Brian's capacity to think globally or to be sort of globally. Yes, so you don't uh, forget us. We have the symbol of Dalana with us. <gasps> and this for you, our special oh. favorite horse. <laughs> it's a Dalana horse. <laughs> it couldn't be better. Thank you so, oh, thank so, you. so, so much. <laughs>